Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. There we go. Let's make we'll sure this shows up on the uh, YouTube. I don't see it, though. This is the thing where it says we're going live. We are live. It, it says What's we're live. Best? I don't. What? I don't see it though. What? I don't see it either. Wait. Look I don't in the know comments. if we're really live. Yeah, look at the comments. That will tell you if we're we're actually live or not. Are we live, you guys? Let us know in the comments. Just spam us. You are live. <laughs> I don't know. That's the thing. I don't want to do my intro and then. We're not even live. <laughs> we're not even live because we could be live. It says we're live. Wait. Some people are like, I see you guys, not live. How are people saying not live? <laughs> do you, do I, you still, it? It's not popping up on my YouTube yet. So is it I got two different phones. All right, let's check. I just, imagine, I don't how, see it. imagine how weird this is going to be for the, the replay if we are actually live right now. <laughs> we just fall apart without Kevin. Yeah, we don't, what do we do? Where's the governor when you need him? Yeah. Imagine if uh, imagine if we did the entire episode, by the way, and then it was just never posted. <laughs> Wait, videos unlisted. Yeah, maybe make it public. See if that works. Mm. Uh, let's see. Hold on. I'm you so afraid. Five. Public? <laughs> I'm so afraid. Should I just do it? Do just it. do it, man. Just do it. You only live once. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Hey, right. and the problem is, yeah. Kevin's the not problem here. Is there we go. We did it. We're yes. Live. Yes. I see it. Hey, guys. Oh, yeah, okay. we're live. So welcome to the next episode of Millennial Money. This is going to be a really interesting episode because we're missing Kevin. And we've spent the last 20 minutes trying to figure out how to work this. Kevin was able to get us up on stream. So we're good now. Uh, the few difficulties we have is that we don't know uh, the, the, the chat. We might have to leave the chat just open this one. What, let's see. Let's see. Usually we'll uh, go to member chats after 10 minutes. But anyway, we got a very interesting episode today. We're going to be talking about the uh, the issues with the new uh, variant illness that's going around. We got a lot of stock market earnings going on this week. We got Bitcoin, which went almost to 40000 before coming back down a little bit. We got real estate prices that continue to get more expensive. And Andre just got a haircut. I did it and they cut it too short and I'm like, come on, you're leaving me there like that. Come on. I'm going to Maui though. So I'm super excited. Maui is tomorrow and I've never been and I'm so excited. I'm going to get a fake tan later on because I was going to whiten my teeth, but I decided to get a tan instead. Nice. Did you, uh, do you pre-plan your videos ahead of time or are you just going to take a day off? I planned one ahead of time. It's kind of an evergreen and I'll still have to film something there. So hopefully something exciting happens. <laughs> thank you thank you 
fresh. Saying I'm fresh. All right, all right. Yeah. So yeah, I've got one planned, but hopefully something exciting happens. Nice. And who Maybe. cut your hair? Clearly myself. No, uh, somebody from Great Clips. And this is not sponsored by Great Great Clips. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I went I to Supercuts. I started giving instructions. I'm like, just just make it short and shorter on the sides, off the ears. And they're like, all right. <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm never happy with it. So, anyway. yeah. I went to Supercuts the last time. I think it was like 15 bucks right down the street. They did a good job. It was a little too short in the beginning, but they, I thought it was fine. They do so. tend to cut your hair a little bit short, but there's another more high-end one. It was like a barber. I forget the name, but they're great. Anyway. Anyway. variant. Let's talk about it. What is going on? So did you guys see that the Delta variant is apparently between like 40 to 90% more contagious than the original strand? Well, that's scaring off a lot of people. I know you said, Jeremy, something happening in Vegas here. We're, we're, uh, we're not, I don't know, things are looking a little scarier. Jeremy, we can't hear you. I'm just kidding. Don't do that to me. <laughs> oh, the technical difficulties. No. So anyways, uh, yeah, the Rony Rona, man, it's back and it's, it's more vicious than ever before. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know, man. I'm almost more worried about the, the, this one a little bit because it's so dang contagious. And then everybody's, I feel like checked out of Rony Rona. Like we're so over it. Right. And just when life was getting back to normal and you're starting to see concerts and sporting events and all these things again, it's like right back up in our face. And it's just frustrating, man, to, to even have to deal with this anymore. But this one's super contagious. Uh, the numbers are getting bad. I'm tracking the numbers in Vegas. I'm tracking the numbers around the United States. And I heard, you know, a month ago, uh, I had people telling me, you know, in, in some of these places internationally, it, the Delta has just been going nuts. And so it's unfortunate, man. And, um, you know, I don't see a way out of it, to be completely honest. I think we're going to have to be back in masks. I think uh, there's a high probability. I don't know if we're going to have to shut down the whole economy and all those sorts of things, but I'm really, really worried about like, you know, even like I'm thinking about football season, like, you know, uh, NFL, college football, that was supposed to be back to normal stadiums packed again. And I'm looking at these numbers and we're still in summertime. It's July. It, the, the craziest thing is the numbers are going to really explode likely in the fall time. And so it's a little worrisome, and obviously the stock market's a little worried about it. Um, you know, what's your perspective on this, Graham? Yeah, it seems like we're going to be going back to the uh, to the masks, which I think just you know whatever we need to do. Honestly, I, I'm I'm all for it, and uh, that's what I think is probably going to happen. I can't see them putting on further restrictions, but I can see them saying, "Hey guys, uh, you know, we we were asking just for vaccinated people without the masks." But now we want everyone to wear a mask just in case. I've also heard quite a few stories anecdotally from a lot of people who have had the vaccine and are now getting the new variant. So I'm thinking maybe there is more of a risk than people let on, uh, which is certainly a possibility. So I could see us going back to masks. And uh, it, at least from the, from the good side of this uh, is that uh, it does appear that the symptoms for vaccinated people are not as severe as they were a year ago. So... At least, uh, at least there is that. Yeah, there are there are apparently people in Congress that are getting COVID, even though they were vaccinated. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, would you guys go to get another vaccine if the government just told us to, hey, you need another update? Would you guys go back and do it? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the boosters, I think, are going to need – like, you're going to have to get the boosters, I think, because the regular shot – what is it good for, six months or something like that? Or after six months, it really starts to wear off? So I heard something like that. Um, no, and so, no way. No? Like the original? No, the original vaccine should last for life. But, I mean, if there's another variant, they're going to give us a booster, which that, should also hopefully be for life too. <laughs> okay. Yeah, keep on coming every six months and get a new injection. Well, that's the thing with like the flu shot. You got to get a new one every season if you're somebody that gets a flu shot, right? And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, man, it's, you know, I don't know how all that's going to work out, but it's frustrating. It does make me worry a little bit about travel stocks because I am thinking, man, if all of a sudden we're back to mask and, and but at the same time, you know, Vegas, we, we were building some business even, even last summer, you know, when it, you know, everybody, had this, you know, the biggest Rona fears. Um, there were still the masks and whatnot. And then it makes me think like, let's say, uh, you know, business is limited in any sort of, of fashion. Are we going to have stimulus? You, like, where would you guys put the percentage odds on any sort of stimulus checks being sent out um, in this year or, or the beginning of 2022? Where would you put the percentages on that? Ooh, I, so far, I'd say about 30% for me right now, 30%. If it gets worse, because I'm seeing on the CDC website right now, it says 56,000 uh, seven-day moving average. So 56,000 new cases, which is pretty substantial and it's growing. So, so far, I'm going to put it at 30%, but 40%, 50% sounds reasonable too to me. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Graham? What would you say percentages are of, of another stimulus round uh, coming back half of this year, beginning in of uh, 2020? Uh. I think pretty slim, realistically. Okay. I, I think the chance of that happening, is, I don't know, 20%, maybe one in five. I think what's what's more realistic is that uh, I, I think probably the, the child tax, what was it, $300 a month, uh, the child credit, I think could be continued. I know a lot, uh, a lot of people are pushing for that. So that's what I could see. But I don't know. I think things would have to get pretty severe for another stimulus round to come out. Although I will say that if we do get another round of stimulus, I hope by then, which I don't think it will happen, but I, I really wish it did, uh, if the government could have its own stable coin ready, because you can you imagine how fast they would pay people out if they actually had a stable coin in place that they can just directly send to people? That would be so much faster than waiting through the traditional banking system. So, I mean, that's one big benefit of a government, like Fed coin, if you want to call it that. Um, that would be awesome, but I don't think they'll have it ready by then. That that's true. Yeah, I, you know what's interesting? I wonder how much of uh, you know Bitcoin's rise, a lot of stocks rise, you know, could be attributed to uh, you know the stimulus checks when when those were sent out because. You know, obviously there was a huge kind of move upward in Bitcoin, all crypto prices, as long as there's stimulus. And then right shortly after that last round of stimulus, that's when it seemed like crypto started to fade. A lot of the growth stocks, more speculative retail trader names start to fade. And so it does make you think, man, like how much of that stimulus money got put into into crypto or, or more speculative stocks? As soon as people got it, they're like, if you didn't need it, all of a sudden it's like, OK, let me just invest it. Huge, so. yeah. That was that, that was the boom of shorting, right? Uh, not shorting. Uh, gosh, the the hedge plays. Everyone was uh, doing options trading. That was the rise yeah. of options trading. That was that era. So I could totally see that if we do get another round of stimulus, that would be huge for our speculative assets, especially.
Yeah, even yeah. indirectly. Imagine getting a, a $1,200 check and then spending it at the local store. Of that, let's say $200 is profit for the store. And then the store is doing pretty well. And you say, well, with this extra money, let me go and put it in GameStop. So I think right. at least even indirectly, within a few months, a lot of that would flow back through the economy. I will say, I will say though, I hope the government doesn't limit business operation. I think that is the worst thing we can do. Like, I don't care. Force us to wear masks, force us to get vaccines. Like, I don't care. Just please don't shut businesses down because that's what leads to less profits. That's what leads to, you know, downsizing. That's what leads to unemployment. And that's just when things get way, way worse. So like, regardless of how bad things might get this time around, I just hope that we don't shut businesses down. That's, that's my biggest fear. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think if there, you know, is any limits of business, like let's say, you know, the Rona is going crazy in the fall again. Right. And let's say the numbers even higher. I don't know. I could definitely see potentially city states um, saying your restaurant can only be half full now or 25% full or taking, you know, doing some of those things again. So I think if that happens, the, the chances we get a stimulus again is, is I think higher. Um, but, and then Graham, you know, maybe you can speak to this. I hear a lot of, as far as real estate goes about forbearance and some of these things kind of going away and then unemployment, uh, maybe be taken away. And, and all, a lot of people have been seeing messages about September, October, these sorts of things. Can you, can you speak to any of that? And do you think it's gonna have any impact on real estate or not really? Yeah, that's the eviction, uh, memorandum that's going to be ending. So that's what it is. So, so the theory is that there are potentially millions of tenants out there who are behind on their rent who would be evicted normally but because of this memorandum they're not being evicted so they think that once this expires all of a sudden all of these landlords millions of tenants are all going to be displaced put on the street that's going to cause a housing crash of sorts so when you really get into it though you begin to realize that um uh let's see uh that uh, very few tenants are actually really behind on the rent more than like 60 to 90 days. And when you look at the, what was it? The National Multifamily Rent Council. I forget what it is. I'm blanking right now. But when you when you look at their website, they have a database that covers like 20,000 different rentals across the entire country in various income brackets. And what they found was that we have about 2% more than usual in terms of tenants paying their late uh, tenants paying rent late more than 60 days. So we really don't have as much as people say, like people keep saying, oh, you know, a third of tenants haven't paid their rent in time, uh, in full. But by the end of the month, pretty much 95, 94% of tenants get caught up by then. So I think what's going to end up happening is that yes, there is, a, there's a subset of tenants who are behind on the rent. I don't think it's as bad as the media portrays. And I think of those tenants who are not paying, as soon as they know they could get evicted, they're, they're probably out of there pretty quickly. And landlords are probably out there, too, wanting to do cash. For eviction is really the last case resort for any landlord. You would hate to go through an eviction. And especially when things would get so backed up. Like imagine processing hypothetically 500,000 evictions. That's going to take months to go through. So I think once it once it ends that landlords and tenants will be able to work it out or tenants will just straight up leave. And when does that expire? September, was it? September. Or September, right. Yeah. But yeah, so, so far it's always expired. And then 30 days before they've said, okay, now it'll expire October 31st. And then October comes out. Okay. Now it's November. So they've continually just kept pushing this off a little bit further. 
Yeah, so I yeah. think what will be different this time around, though, uh, is like I think Jeremy was saying, Congress, right? Congress is different. Now we have a Democratic trifecta. We have the House, we have the Senate, we have the President. So stimulus will come fast and hard. That's what she said. And debt, <laughs> debt is the only other, debt is the other difference, right? So because these small businesses have already taken on those debt, those loans, um, they might not be able to take out those loans again to survive. So I think that second wave, if we get it, will be way more devastating just because I don't see, you know, the, the, the cruise lines, the airlines taking on billions of more debt and surviving after that. I don't know. Jeremy, what do you think? Yeah, no, you, you, you make some really good points there. Um, my, my, I actually have a question because I've never rented a property to anybody and I've been fortunate to never be like late on payments, but what are the rules as far as eviction goes? Like, let's say somebody's like five days late. Can you just kick them out? Is it 30 days? Is like, what's the rule in, in order to like kick somebody out of an apartment or a home you're renting? How's that yeah, work? It's not easy. It's a very lengthy process. So usually you'll have, so, so usually there's a grace period of let's say three days. So by the third of the month, technically you are late. Now, what a lot of management companies do uh, is that on the third day, basically the minute it's late, you post a three day notice to pay or quit. That's what's standard. So like the second you're late, you have another three days to then pay. If you don't pay by that date, at that point, you, you could then go and file for uh, eviction. That process could usually take anywhere from a few weeks, the very, very, very soonest, depending on the county, to a few months. If you're in a place like Los Angeles or maybe New York, but but even back and forth, I mean, there's definitely a time where the tenant knows what's going on. They can respond. They can try to pay their rent. They could try to work things out with the landlord. There, there's so many stops along the way to make sure that like eviction is the, is the last resort. Like you don't want to go through eviction. They really try to make it so that like the tenant knows what's going on. They could pay. The landlord knows how long this could take. So it, it's 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 a few month process. Have you ever had a tenant just not pay or maybe pay on that third day, but constantly delay their payments? Or yeah. if like they were a month late, but then they constantly kept on doing that and pushing it and pushing it because the whole process, like you said, takes months in some cases. Yeah, like, so, here's the, so here's the thing. Once you file for the eviction, let's say the, the, the paperwork is all filed, you got it in, and then tenant says, oh, you know what? Uh, I'll pay this month, I'll pay it. Once they pay it and you accept the money, then you have to start the process over again if they're late again. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. They could just continue so, reset the process. Yeah, but then you're getting paid as a landlord. So usually it's not a good sign if the tenant starts perpetually paying later and later and later and later until eventually it's just like, well, just stop paying. So it's usually something you gotta, you just gotta be firm on the dates. I mean, it's just like whatever's in the contract, you, you just, you have to stick with it. You have six rentals, right? You said six or seven? Yeah, six or <laughs> yes, <laughs> six or, yeah. yes, six or seven houses. <laughs> I yeah, because when I moved out of the duplex, it was like then I rented out that unit too. So, wow. Yeah, and you haven't noticed anything go like off with your tenants? They, they haven't stopped paying or anything. I had one experience where uh, a tenant. This is the tenant that I've had since two thousand eleven. One experience in the middle of like the worst of uh, worst of the illness, she lost her job. Uh, her mother unfortunately passed away, and until that point, and that was I don't know for what eight years, she's always paid on time, like exactly 
on the second of every single month, no matter what, she's paid for rent on time. So I knew this was like an anomaly. And and she called me like ahead of time to let me know like, hey, uh, I could pay the next month rent, but I don't have a job right now. My mom just passed away. I'm taking some, some time off. I can't pay you the next month. I'm gonna let you know 100. And I and, and for a tenant that that has always paid on time for like eight years, I'm not gonna be like, well, no, you gotta pay. You know, I mean, so I told her, listen, don't worry about it. Um, she, it listen, at, at this point, like we've known each other for such a long time that I was like, don't worry about it. The next month came around and she was really worried. She's like, what's going to happen? I'm like, and this is the, like the worst of COVID by the way. So like things were under lockdown. I was like, listen, don't worry about it. Uh, I think like two to three months went by and the entire time she's like, listen, I'm looking for a job. I got a job lined up in like September, but in between now and then I, I just don't have any money. I, I could try to make out. I was just tell, don't worry about it. She ended up getting a job and, um, uh, then started paying again, I think three or four months later. And I just let it go. I mean, for a tenant who's been with me for eight years. So, oh, wow. so, so yeah. She didn't have to make up the three or four months of missing payments. That's awesome. No, 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 no. Uh, because I knew that was like an anomaly situation. I knew that was not her like trying to swindle something. And, and, she, and she, what, what really made the difference for me was that, like, she was giving me updates on like her status of, of getting a job. Like she was actually like, this is what I'm doing. And I, I, I this interview went really well. And I, I was appreciative. I'm like, oh, thank you. I, you know, I appreciate that. Good luck. She got it. She's like, okay, it's starting on this date. So I could resume payments then. And she even asked, she's like, do you want to work on a payment plan that I could pay this back? And I'm like, don't worry about it. Just, you know, stay there. Just, con just continue at this point on forward. And, and that was That's it. And so far, she's been great. That's really but, cool. But for me too, it's like, uh, listen, not only do I not want to kick anybody out, but she's been such a good tenant. I, I don't want to lose a great tenant like that, especially right. over a few months worth of rent. It's just in, in a big picture, it, it's better for her to stay. And it's better for me to let her keep a few months worth of rent. If that means she's happy there for another few years. That's awesome. Yeah. This right. is uh, my first time owning a home and I've been a renter for, I want to say eight or nine years now. If I had known that I was going to stay in Vegas, I would have definitely bought a place earlier. But then I don't know if I would have had the courage to leave my job in the first place and, you know, for fear of losing my house for not being able to afford it. So renting in a lot of ways really saved me a ton of money and gave me a lot of freedom, which was awesome. But at the same time, I didn't build any equity. So it's a taking, uh, you know, give and take. But yeah, I actually want to ask you guys about Robinhood. Are you guys investing in the IPO? No, not planning on it. Mm -hmm. What do you know? All right, listen. After after Coinbase, that was my uh, that was my stupid moment of like buying in on IPO. I listen. I felt so smart for those first few minutes. I got in and saw it go to like four hundred something. Like wow, I just made like four percent in like a few minutes. The crazy <laughs> thing is, like five says three hundred eighty dollars is a great entrance point. <laughs> I watched your video. I did my due diligence. Yeah. So after that, is I'm it? like, you know what? No, I'm gonna let the dust settle on that one right in regards to coinbase coinbase if you look at when they went public i'm pretty sure that was right around the crypto peak wasn't it wasn't that right around when bitcoin hit sixty five thousand? there was like max like crypto enthusiasm yeah. in the market right totally uh, i think it was coming down i don't think it was at the peak i think it was on the okay. down end. But around there, yeah, definitely around there. Um, yeah. they, you could say they went they went public at almost the perfect time in terms of how they much money did. they did. They did. Robinhood, on the other hand, I mean, did you guys see that new allegation that the CEO Vlad Tenev he doesn't have his FINRA license? 
which apparently is not a big deal because a lot of CEOs don't have that. Um, but they're trying to give them crap about it. Uh, and I was thinking the other day, you know, with Robinhood, it's, uh, I read one of their reports and the median account value is apparently $240 per person that is in, you know, in the app, which is very low um, in relation to some of the other brokers. So it's kind of interesting that if you compare Robinhood and how it makes money, which is payment for order flow, which is where they get paid from the brokers, you know, and they have this kind of weird relationship where it's a conflict of interest. If you compare that against some of the other traditional uh, brokers like, you know, Charles Schwab or something or Fidelity, where they can make money off, you know, the interest on their balances, which they have, they have so many customers, they have such high balances and such high accounts that, you know, Robinhood is forced to sort of rely on this payment for order flow. But I didn't know this. I don't know if you guys knew this. The UK and Canada do not allow brokerages to make money with payment uh, through order flow. It's, it's wow. illegal. It's illegal. Yeah. So here in the US, it's, it's, it's fine. And it's, it's, it's interesting to compare the different dynamics because Robinhood argues that, hey, payment for order flow gives customers a better price for stocks. And that's exactly the opposite argument from you know the Canadians and people in the UK, they're like, no, it doesn't. That's a that's a conflict of interest. That yeah. that doesn't. Uh, know, that's it, uh, it. It's not surprising to me in terms of the average user having two hundred forty bucks. A lot. How many people do you know that just signed up for Robinhood because they wanted the free stock, and then they're like, wow, I could get other free stocks if I get my friends to sign up. So they all get their friends to sign up, and pretty soon they have you know twenty thirty dollars in their account very easily. Maybe they go and throw a hundred bucks in it. That's not surprising to me. The payment for order flow too. I mean, it doesn't matter to me how much money is in each individual account. You could have a thousand dollars, just trade it back and forth every few days, thousand in, thousand out, thousand in, thousand out, and make and make Robinhood quite a lot of money. But I don't know. I mean, as far as payment for order flow, like objectively, we're we're not talking about a ton of money here for payment for order flow. It's it's a it's like a hundredth of a cent, or it's like a thousandth of a cent on the customer side. Yeah. Right. It, it's so small that like, even if you were trading millions of dollars, I mean, this would add up to like like 10 bucks. Like and, and if you're trading like a lot of money. So I think in the big picture to, to offer free trading at a, a thousandth of a cent, I, I mean, it's the, a conflict the, of interest, but right. uh, see my problem with the, the low account, my problem with it, the fact that the median is $240 is it kind of tells you that, like you said, it's just a random person just downloading Robinhood and just yellowing some money into it, which means that if regulations were to ever go against that payment for order flow, which by the way, there is, they're, they're just wondering like, Hey, maybe we should stop this stuff. Maybe we shouldn't allow it. And if that happens, Robinhood would be really, really affected by that. And because some of the other big boy brokerages, uh, offer other more, you know, advanced products, you know, loans and, and whatever it is they do. Robinhood, because of its simplicity, I don't think would ever be able to integrate those more sophisticated product offerings. So in a way, their growth is sort of limited by the amount of customers they can capture rather than the products that they offer. And so unless they change that in the future, which I, I don't see them changing just because they would have to change their whole interface. I mean, as soon as you get into loans, as soon as you get into these other things, it just gets way more complicated. So Robinhood, in a way, is kind of stuck with that simple trade model. But if regulation goes against them, there goes their entire business model. So that's that's the only like drawback that I see. And in a way, it's almost like 
going to the casino and just investing in this IPO. I don't know. I'm not going to do it because I learned my lesson with Coinbase too, but that, that's my take. Yeah. And, and with the Robinhood, I mean, the, the $240 thing, I mean, I think that that really shows you two things. One is that number's like so unbelievably low. Like it's hard to even fathom. Like you look at Fidelity, I believe Fidelity's average account size is something like, I think like over a hundred thousand dollars. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's such a different ballpark. Second thing it really shows is no one really takes Robinhood serious if you got big money. Um, because clearly just like if somebody is building up on Robinhood and gets to any substantial amount of money, five figures, six figures, especially seven figures, it seems like they just moved to another platform. They're like, oh, I'm going to go with Fidelity or TD Ameritrade or, or Interactive Brokers or somebody like that. Because, you know, there's just, you know, if you think about it, like, if you have enough super wealthy people using it, it would help outweigh some of the smaller accounts where people just have a few hundred bucks in it, right? But clearly those people, I don't even think are using the platform. And to be honest, I don't know if I know anybody that has more than a hundred K on, on Robinhood. You know, maybe uh, usually, you know, usually you do you, Andre, you really do. You have over a hundred K in Robinhood. What? You don't watch my videos. How could you, Jeremy? Uh <laughs> <laughs> no way seriously andre whoa you know how much crap i get from my comment section of being i mean anytime i do like a dividend update video they're like oh this guy's an idiot he uses robin hood <laughs> just like leave me alone i don't it's funny do though trading despite all of that they're still the largest so it's either we're, yeah. we're dealing with a small subset of people wow. who are savvy about this wow andre way, way to go wait so is that all dividend stocks um, mostly I'd say 70%, but the other 30 is index. I'm, I'm shifting more towards index just because of tax implications, not because I don't love dividends. I still love dividends. I'm still reinvesting everything. I didn't sell anything and I still want to build up a huge dividend portfolio. I know Graham, you don't like dividends. I love dividends just because as far as like a retirement plan, I can actually see how much I'm making and then compare that against my expenses. But when you're going to be retired, you're going to have to sell off your index funds, which I mean, by that point, you'll have so much money. It doesn't no, matter. You borrow yeah. against the index fund, so you don't have to pay tax on it. You borrow against the index fund? Yeah. And then you avoid tax. Right. Yeah. Then you could do that. That's a more sophisticated way of going about it. But anyway, I'm just saying you can, you can better plan when you know what your income is versus your expenses. But I don't know. That's just my way of looking at it. That's an that's an interesting concept, Graham. Did just spend one to two minutes just dive into that that concept because a lot of people probably just heard what you said there and they're like, "What borrow against?" Yeah, what it's talking about. So yeah, so you, what you could do is called a pledged asset line. So let's just say that you've saved up a million dollars in the stock market. It's sitting there in an index fund. What you could do is you could go to your broker and they say, "We'll lend you up to let's call it seventy percent of what's that what what that's worth." And here's the term and here's the interest rate. So let's say for, for me, they say, okay, you have a million bucks. We'll lend you $700,000 on a, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the, what the rate would be right now, probably two something percent. So we'll lend you 700,000. Uh, you'll pay us 2.2% a year. And then uh, you'll just pay us back with interest. Now, was, now I, I could use my own income to pay back that loan. I could use the income that they basically loaned me to start paying it back. So every every month that whittles down a little bit further. Or as the stocks go up up in value, it, it should be going up long term more than the two point two percent. So I could sell some of those stocks, pay back the loan, and then end up more than what I started out with. Now, could you technically get margin called? Does does the loan depend on the equity position? 
the value. Yes. Yeah. So, so you're, you're, you're basically living on margin is what you're doing. Yeah. Well, tech. Yeah. Yes. But with the pledged asset line, it's on an index. It's, it depends. I mean, if you're, if you're in GameStop and you, and you're, first of all, they wouldn't, they, when they give you a pledged asset line, they look at the volatility of what you're investing in and the chance of it dropping. So let's say with something like GameStop, let's say you have a million dollars in GameStop. They might say, okay, we're going to lend you 15% of that. And that way we have a, enough of a buffer here to make sure that we don't need to do anything. On an index fund, I've seen it at like 70 to 80%. And on bonds, I've seen it like at 90%. So it really depends on what they're loaning against. But yeah, so, I mean, obviously, if the stock market crashes and it's like, you know, a 90% drop, yes, they, there well, should be some repayment terms in there that says, you know, you have X amount of days or this long to basically make up for that. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, what if you're a retiree in 2007 and you're like, well, I've saved a million dollars, but I don't want to sell it. I'm just going to live off this loan. So they do that. And then 2008 happens. They lose 50%. What happens yeah. to the loan? Get margin yeah, but you're not, but you're not pulling out seven hundred thousand at a time. Let's say you have a million dollars, you're going to pull out how much you might need for the next year. So you might only pull out like ten percent of your portfolio, if that. Realistic, you're probably pulling out like five percent. Sure, yeah. but I'm just talking about the rest of the balance. Does that get taken away, or is that only? No, because you're only because you're only loaning such a small amount for the overall portfolio. Got it. So you're constantly taking out tiny loans rather than one big one. Right. As needed if you need it. But yeah, but that's the concept that uh, it, it works in some situations because you won't have to pay the upfront tax or you mm. could do that long enough until you're maybe in a lower tax bracket and then you could start selling. But uh, I, ideally, you, you don't want to sell. But it all, depends, all our, depends on what you're working on. All, all our future multimillionaires out there, make sure you smash that like button for that, that game that Graham just gave you yeah. out there. Man. Like some good game right there. Well, here's the thing too. If you have an income of less than, I forget what it, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year, you're not paying capital gains tax anyway. So if, if you're planning to live off of thirty to forty thousand dollars a year in retirement, you could just straight up sell off these these stocks, pay nothing in capital gains tax. And that's so why dividends in those are awesome. is better. What? And that's why dividends are awesome, because you could plan on a fifty K a year lifestyle and be tax free. Uh, not necessarily. If you're making more money, though, let's say let's say you keep working. Oh, for sure, for sure. I'm just saying, yeah. if if 100 of your income is purely from your dividends, from qualified dividends, you could be tax free 100. Correct. But you would have to structure that so carefully to make Wait, sure that you, you you fell within that that zero percent category. I feel like that strategy you spoke of there, Graham. I feel like that's really better if you got substantial amounts of money. I feel like it's more impactful. Like if you got three mil, five mil, ten mil in stocks when you right. go to retire or whatever. So yes. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you should not be doing this with. I don't know. It's probably this is the strategy for like five million and above. Yeah. So. <laughs> Which like means. Everybody watching this is going to have a percent of people just left the chat. <laughs> I don't think so. Listen, I think a lot of people can uh, can work towards that. So for sure. I don't think yeah. it's anything to, to scoff about. Well, I, well, listen, especially a lot of people are watching this under the age of 30, especially especially anyone under 25. I mean, gosh, the sky's the limit. Yes. Sure. Speaking of becoming millionaires, uh, Jeremy, what's going on with tech? Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, 
you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. <laughs> well, that was a smooth transition there, Andre. Nice. <laughs> Speaking about becoming millionaires, did you see tech get trashed today? No. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, yeah, so earnings craziness after the bell. You had Apple, you had Microsoft, you had Google, McDougal, um, all reporting earnings. And then you had Visa. Visa is a sneaky company, and I want to cover all these. But Visa, I was looking. I, I, I don't track Visa that heavily. Can you guys guess what what Visa's market capitalization is? Mm, I should know. Without this. looking, without Visa, looking, I'm, I'm going to guess yeah. uh, Visa, Visa, Visa. It's got to be over a hundred. I'm going to guess a hundred billion. Andre, you got to guess. Um, I have no idea. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. So Visa's market cap is five hundred and fifty billion dollars now. Wow. wow. That's bigger than, yeah, 550 billion Visa is now, which is, uh, that's far bigger than like any company when I started investing in the stock market. Like the biggest of the big companies when I first started investing were like 300 billion market cap, 400 billion. So that's just crazy. But the big techs have all gone over a trillion. So it kind of dwarfs some of these other companies. I'm like, Visa's just a sneaky one. That's just $550 billion market cap. Like, are you kidding me? But that business model is amazing, right? So anyways, they came out with earnings. They beat. Their stock went down. Um, Apple, I don't know if Apple's up or down now after hours. They were down for quite a bit after hours. And they reported a perfect earnings. Like Apple, it doesn't get better. They beat analyst expectations by $8 billion. $8 billion. They beat what analysts had expected. Like it's crazy to think how few companies even can do eight billion in revenue in a three-month span, and Apple just beat the estimates by eight billion. Like just, um, and then you had uh, Microsoft reported great earnings. They had a double beat. Their stock went down, and uh, Google reported such ridiculous numbers that their stock actually went up after hours. So they were the one that bucked the trend. Starbucks, Graham was down after hours because they just oh. beat by a little bit. So, wow. But so, but how much does tech make up of the S and P? Was it and not tech, but like the top four companies in the index funds: Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Google. It's like twenty percent or something ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, yeah. The top five make up. I think it's either twenty percent or twenty-five percent. So you know, wherever those stocks are going, they're really dictating a lot of where the market goes. And then if those stocks are bleeding, it it carries the rest of the market down with it. So, so tell me for a second, why, if all of these companies reported like smashing earnings, why did the market go down? Then is this a case of, uh, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news type of thing? Well, a lot of these stocks have been climbing, right? Apple, if you look at Apple, it's, it's near an all time high. And if you look at, uh, you know, it's market cap, it's pretty much near an all time high, two and a half trillion dollars going into these earnings. Right. And if you look at its, its trailing 12-month PE and you look at its forward PE, both of them are extremely high on a historical standard. Like usually uh, Apple's going to trade between like a 10 and maybe a 20 on the high end PE. Lately, it's been trading at like a 33. So wait, 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 wait. what did you say? Apple is historically between 10 and 20? There's no way. Between 10 and 20 PE and recently it's been like at a 30 plus. And so... Yeah. 
it's just trading really, really rich on a valuation basis. And so, you know, to get Wall Street and big money to go out there and, and want to buy Apple stock, I mean, even if they report some ridiculous numbers, they're still like, eh, I don't know if I really need to buy Apple today. Uh, buy it in the future, maybe when there's some bad news into the stock, maybe the stock's down. And so that's the thing that frustrates a lot of retail investors because they think like, well, if they report amazing numbers, the stock's gonna go up. Look at Tesla. Tesla yesterday, for instance, Tesla reported the best earnings of their lives, man. It was amazing, a billion dollars in net income. Yeah, revenue went crazy. And um, Tesla stock was down like 2% today. And it's like, that's how Tesla's rewarded after these unbelievable earnings. But Tesla was up a thousand percent plus in the past two years. So it has a lot of that already kind of uh, baked in. It, everybody already expecting these ridiculous numbers. So um, do you think Tesla will ever go back down to the $500 range? I think that's definitely possible. Um, you know, 400, 500, that's always possible. Um, that, that's not a stretch of the imagination at all. I mean, shoot, if the NASDAQ just went down five, ten percent, you know, Tesla could be back there. So, um, but yeah, when, when you get these stocks just continuing to climb and climb and climb, they've already baked in so much good news that sometimes it doesn't even matter what earnings they report. And it frustrates a lot of people. It really does, but it's just, it's the way it goes. However, on the flip side, you look at a lot of the small caps that have been going down and down and down. If some of those companies just report decent earnings, they don't have to even have to knock the ball, ball out of the ballpark. A lot of those stocks, I bet you will skyrocket because the expectations are so low and, right. and the stock prices are so beaten down versus big tech. The expectations are up here and the stock prices are up here. So, you know, unless you report like through the roof, like, you know, you're going down or you're stagnant. So, so what you were saying is when it comes to tech, because they're, the expectation for them is just to be perfect. And if they're not anything but perfect, it's it's like just the stock just goes down. It just drops. Yeah, because the valuations have just climbed so dang much. Yeah, right. yeah. Eventually, you just kind of get tapped out and it's like that for a bit, right? And then the, the scary thing is when you think about it like this, like you look at Apple, for instance, right? Uh, it was a perfect earnings, 10 out of 10. Like it doesn't get better than that. And that stock still was down, I think, 2% after hours. Imagine if Apple had just reported decent earnings or dare I even say, imagine if they'd reported bad earnings. Imagine where that stock would have been after hours, right? So, you yeah, know, like, like, the stock market doesn't make sense. It would just be up. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> we reported losses. People are like, cool, buy the dip. I could totally see that mentality. They just reported a loss. Yeah. People are like, well, people are going to sell it. I'm going to buy it. It's yeah. it, the market does exactly the opposite of what you would logically think. It's just <laughs> like that. Just do the opposite yeah. of what you think is smart. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes the market's pricing in things to the future too. You know, it's looking out six months, twelve months into the future. And and uh, but uh, you know, anyways, are you any of you guys interested in buying any of the big techs on these earnings? Um, is that something that interests you or not really? Yes, for me, I really want to get more Tesla. I got in, I think, in the five fifty range. Which okay. Is Dang good considering how high it's been and it's been floating around six and seven hundred. So, I mean, 500, I don't think it's that bad. Also, I'm really disappointed because the chip shortage, my estimate for the Model Y is in November and it's killing me because I need a car, but it's it's so bad. November, huh, Andre? Wow. Andre, why don't, why don't you just cancel the order for the Model Y and then get a used Model X? Um, can I even get an X for that price for what I got? In that? I don't know. A lot of used X's are still 70 plus. 
Yeah, and also I'm not a huge fan of the gullwing doors, to be honest with you. Like they're what? cool, they're cool, but I think they're a little problematic. Like they can become a little problematic. Um, based on what? Just no. based on the reviews I've seen, people I'll, like that is the biggest complaint of the Model X is the gullwing doors, which are both the coolest and the worst feature. I don't know. Yeah, I have one day to fix it. Yep. Okay. Yeah, they, they they came to my house one day to fix it. And then if you buy used, you might buy out of warranty, which means maybe that would have to come out of your pocket. So when I got it fixed, they came to my house for free, did everything for free. It was done. Boom. But if you buy used and it's out of warranty, you know, I, who knows? Maybe that would have cost a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks. You know, I, I have no clue. I mean, plus so. like used cars are legit 99% within the price of a new car. So you might as well just buy a new car. Like the used cars, they are just as expensive as a new car right now. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah. So, wow. All the way to November, though. That's so, so that, that's really out there. I didn't know it was that bad. Man. Yeah. Did you, did you, I, I didn't tune into the earnings call, but I, based on what I just saw, Elon was just complaining that like, hey, we can't deliver things. And it's like beyond their control. They can't do anything about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's a chip shortage, and then he he specifically on the earnings call, he he stated that uh, they were having trouble getting some some seat belts, which is like the simplest thing. Like, geez, come on, seat belts, seriously, and uh, some some simple airbag stuff, believe it or not. So it's not even like the most complicated things like you would think of, like like super boring stuff. But it, you're like, you're not going to ship a car without seat belts or without an airbag. So, Andre. I yeah. found a 2017 Model X P100D mm. ludicrous full self-driving, mm. $85,000. And the reason I say a Model X is because right. the entire thing you could do a write-off in the first year. So, yeah, but I mean, that's 20 grand more than what I'm paying. That's pretty substantially. Like, that's not, it's really not. Considering that you're getting a P100D with full self-driving. Yeah. See, okay. Maybe I'm good. crazy. I want to I want to hear people in the comment section. But like when it comes to fast cars for me, and this is something I had to consider when I was ordering the Model Y. I was like, should I get the performance edition? Because I, I think that's awesome. Like just getting that roller coaster on tap feature is the coolest thing ever about a Tesla. And I was like, but it's a Model Y though. And a Model X is like the same thing. It's like I'm not going to get a fast car and what's supposed to be a, a mom car. Like I, even though it is extremely fast. It is just, it's not as fast as what Tesla is about to offer with the Model right. S and uh, the two road. Things. Two things, but first resale. So you're going to get a lot, whatever you spend on that, you're going to get it back in resale. So the money you're just temporarily tying up in the car and right. you do this for the tax write-off. Take the cost of the car, cut it in half. I mean, I could literally do that with what I'm buying now though. No, you can't. How so? Not with the Model Y. No, you cannot. It's, it's not heavy enough. You, you got to look up the section 179 deduction. The car's got to weigh more than 6,000 pounds. The Model Y does not qualify for that. What is the um, amount of tax deduction? Do you know? The uh, like, amount. If, if, you're, if you're using it exclusively for business, it's 100%. <laughs> I would so not. I work at home. Like, unless I told the IRS, like, yeah, this is totally for business. Well, if whatever it is, you might be able to write it off that amount. I've seen someone post on the Tesla forum. They purposely took delivery of the car like the last week of December and they wrote the entire cost of the car off that last week of, of that last calendar month uh, to be able to qualify for that deduction. Right. Now, my fear is just because I work at home, I'm going to have a really hard time talk, explaining to the IRS. Like, talk, hey, uh, talk to a CPA, but you do enough driving around the city for B-roll that, uh, you know, talk to a CPA. <laughs> okay. 
I, I'll ask. That's cool though. What is it called? The uh, Section One Seven Nine deduction. Section One. And it's only and it's only for vehicles that weigh more than six thousand pounds. So that's why a lot of people got got uh, all crazy about the Rolls Royce Cullinan. I right. believe the Mercedes G Wagon also qualifies. The Audi Q7, I think it is. There's there's a few big cars that will qualify for that deduction. Right. One second. Uh, Reaching yeah. for my charger. That that's why everybody's getting those dang big boy rolls. Hey, I found yeah. somebody. We need to we need to kick this person out of the chat. Their name is Chris uh, Sir Servila. They said get the Ford Lightning, Chris. That's just evil, man. I'm not gonna kick you, okay? But come on, this is a Tesla family, man. <laughs> the Ford Lightning. No, I, I'll give Ford respect, man. Ford, Ford. Uh, you know, I, I think Ford has the most compelling EV in that Mustang EV out of anybody I've seen outside of Tesla, to be honest. I can't, like, if you told me I got to go buy another EV today and it can't be a Tesla, I would probably get one of those Mustang SUVs. They actually look pretty good. The specs on them are pretty good. Like, it looks solid. So I, I got to give some Ford some respect. I don't know if either of you guys own Ford stock, but I got to give them some love, man. No, but actually another car I was really looking at because I'm very jealous of one of Graham's cars that I just don't want to spend the money on. But I've been looking at a, a Mazda Miata, the, the new one with the hardtop convertible. There's like a cult following of that car. It's like the, the smallest, funnest car you'll ever drive. You'll be going the speed limit, but you'll feel like you're on a track. It's so fun. Uh, you know, yeah. that, 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 it's funny to see kind of like these groups, uh, especially in the car space that, that yeah. you know, I, yeah, when, when I got I got a 350Z back in like, I think 2011, and I, I definitely experienced that when people would like, you know, I didn't even know, like I was joining this uh, club and, and everybody's like crazy about it. I'm like, what the heck? Like, this is like a big deal. But people that care, they really care. And like, if you got, I guess, a Mazda Miata, you're, you're like yeah. in with that. Like, it's called the Mazda Miata RF. It's the retractable hard top. It's, it just, and it looks so cool. That car looks so or, slick. And it's been a little, or you spend yeah. a little bit more and you get a Lotus Elise or Exige. That one I sent you, by the way. Yeah. Sold and in a, in a used Elise just sold for fifty four grand. You would have spent know, a little bit more for an Exige. You've got you've got the Lotus game though, and I feel like if I got a Lotus, it'd be like Andre's just going so yeah. hard on fucking. There's brand. another one that you could have oh, gotten. Lotus. There's another one you could have gotten. Uh, it's called an Ariel Adam. I know the Ariel Adam. I looked yeah. at that car like seven years ago. I like love that thing. It's like a go-kart. Yeah. Or the other one is a Noble M400. I've wanted one of those. I almost got that instead of the Exige. Noble M400. Just, I, oh. I don't know, only maybe a few hundred of those cars. You, you almost never find them for sale anymore. Mm, somebody but, just yeah, I love this. Those are cool, but they break down. Is that true? No. Like, plug in my charger. <laughs> no. I've never, I, I don't know any Lotus that's broken down. Because they're made with Toyota parts. It's, it's like saying like, uh, you know, Toyotas break down a lot. They don't. All the, the entire engine is basically a Toyota Celica GTS. Right. Actually, the Evora is uh, the Toyota Camry. It's that engine. You're basically you're driving a Toyota Camry with a slightly tuned engine. Yeah. No, I would totally get a Lotus if you didn't already like gramify it. <laughs> yeah. So, so Graham, back to what we. I don't know how we went left there, but. Uh, Graham, are you buying any big tech stocks, uh, if any of them dip? Oh, big tech, no. I, I, I want uh, Google is the only company that for me, I'm just like, I love Google. 
Um, they tore it up, Graham. Their earnings were ridiculous. I know. They I did know. like tweets. Yeah. We could kind of see it. Now, I know like YouTube makes up, I don't know what YouTube makes up for overall Google, but you could see that ad rates uh, have basically mirrored what uh, the Google stock price has done, which which I find mm -hmm. is pretty unique. And we just see it just like over the past few years that ad rates are going up on, on YouTube. So I've just kind of thought, well, if YouTube ad rates are going up, then probably Google's making a decent amount of money too. And that's across their entire platform. But now I've seen ad rates start to drop. Starting, it was like starting basically July 4th, ad rates dropped like 15%, 20%. And they've stayed somewhat down. They're not as high as they were. Now, we were at the end of a quarter, so maybe that plays into it a little bit. Mm. But besides Google, not really. Uh, I did, Jeremy, buy some win this morning. Ooh, at 100 bucks. And I was telling myself, if it drops under 100, I'll buy a little bit more. And it did. Ooh, uh, yeah. Very nice. Yeah, man. What if it goes? What's the price that you would load the boat on win? What would it have to go 50? down to? 50, 50. Jeez, man. Yeah, I think I think originally that's that's what I was buying into back uh back in like April of last year. Oh, yeah. But that's that's like in a once in a hundred year event, man. That's I don't know if getting down to 50 would be super unrealistic, I think. Like pushing I mean if it was to go down to 80, I would be amazed. Or especially what was it? uh no, so sorry, sorry, sorry. I was buying around 70. Okay, that sounds yeah, about that's what I was buying. Yeah, sorry, not 50. Okay. So, so would you load the boat if if it went down to seventy again, or? Yeah, because look, it's so busy. Mm -hmm. It's always so busy. Yeah, it, for sure, it is. It really is, man. Uh, profit machine. But um, interesting, yeah. And so Google, wow, that's interesting about ad rates there, Graham. So maybe I should go all in on short and Google tomorrow. The stock's gonna be up big. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, like my ad rates plummeted. Let me short it. That's what awesome. would Jack do in this situation? Would he be looking at the candies, the candles, and <laughs> you know what? That would be a fun. That would be a funny way to hedge yourself on YouTube, where it's like you short Google. So if you go down, and the platform goes down, at least you make money on that end. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. So my goodness. Yeah. The, the, so Facebook, by the way, Facebook reports tomorrow. And usually if Google reports great numbers, Facebook reports twice as good a number. So Facebook, I would assume will report some amazing numbers tomorrow as well. And then um, it'll immediately go down. Yes. Immediately down 5% after hours. <laughs> oh gosh. What about any, any other, like these bigger techs that maybe aren't as popular you guys have been, ever been interested in, like let's say Netflix or Nvidia. Stocks like that, AMD. Have you guys ever been interested in buying any of those straight up? Um, no, I, I think I own like one share of AMD. <laughs> but I've always what? wondered. Literally yeah, one. I, I bought it just for uh, just to try out the uh, Square app, uh, their investing platform. Or sorry, the Cash app, not Square, the Cash app, which looks pretty neat. It's just super simple. But uh, no, my question is, is it better to own the individual stock would you say or rather than trying to time each one whether it's facebook or google or amazon just maybe buy some qqq shares or something or some etf or something like a tech one what would you rather do well i mean i'm super biased because i'm an individual stock picker yeah i've been doing it for over 10 years so i'm gonna always say you know pick an individual stock but also i'm willing to put in the research time right 
Graham, on the other hand, you know, he, he said he doesn't want to listen to conference call. He doesn't want to read annual reports. So for him, it makes sense just to buy the indexes, whether that's QQQ or, or SPY or whatever, right? So it really comes down to the individual and, and how much effort or work do you want to put in? Um, I think that's what it ultimately comes down to. But, um, you know, it's fun to own an actual company that you believe in. You know what I mean? Like, and, and especially when you, when you make money over time and like that, that bet pays off. So like, Graham's an example. He buys wind today and, and maybe it goes down more and he buys more. Right. And if all of a sudden wins 150, 200, that's like a whole different feeling than if you just buy the spy. Right. I, I, I view it as a different feeling. It feels like you want up to something even better. Like, oh man, I, I bought this stock. I made this decision to buy this one stock and it went up and it doubled or whatever. So uh, do you feel any different Graham, if you make money in the spy versus stock or is it all the same to you? All the same. Money the same. is money. Is money. Um, okay. I, I, I could see how if you pick a individual stock and it goes up more that you feel like, wow, I beat the market. I picked a good one. But at this point, I think I have like 50 or 60 different stocks. And for me, it's, I don't care. Some days okay. I, I just prefer the S&P. Other days I'll just throw individual stocks, but uh, it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> yeah. so I feel like if, anything, if anything, though, I feel safer investing in, in the, just the S&P. Uh, yeah. because I feel like that's the, not, not that that's like guaranteed, but I just feel like that that's the foundation. Like everything else is kind of extra, but like, that's my core. Right. So, yeah, that makes like sense. If, if anybody approaches you and asks you like, what's the best way to get into investing? It's, it's really funny because when you, when you start, you have this perception of investing as really complicated and you have to study like chart patterns and see all this crazy stuff. But then as you learn, you realize wait, literally the best strategy is just to buy a broad market index fund, set it and forget it, just keep buying regardless of the price, just continually, consistently dollar cost average. Um, so I think for us, picking individual stocks is is more, is okay, because our core is so different. I mean, Jeremy excluded, excluded. He's, a, he's an individual stock picker, and that's how he's made most of his money. But if you're somebody who already has a, like a huge portfolio of index funds, then I would say, you know, it's, it's fine, go pick individual stocks. But I think for 99% of people, especially of people watching us, I imagine they're not going to have the time to get on conference calls and just look at, you know, earnings reports. It's just not something they're into. So. Yeah, you have to really be passionate about it, I would say. You know, if you're not passionate about it, it's hard to really, like, make that time. Because I feel like truly everybody could make the time to be an individual stock picker. I truly believe that. I don't care how busy you are. I still find time for it. And I got a billion things to worry about and the family and all those things, right? But I really love doing it. So I will make that time. You know, somebody else might be like, dude, I, I just want to watch Netflix for two hours and chill. Like, I don't want to freaking listen to the conference call right now. Like, give me a break. Like, in yeah. respect. I think it's, um, you know, and obviously in the crypto landscape, you know, some people want to, you know, put in that work to understand the next big crypto or this opportunity. And other people are like, no, nah, dude, just give me Bitcoin. I'm just going to buy some Bitcoin and call it a day. Like, you know, Bitcoin and, uh, is the equivalent of the, of the S&P 500 index in crypto. <laughs> like Ethereum and Bitcoin are the, you know, broad market, VTI and VOO. That's what they are. Guess yeah. what? Speaking of Bitcoin, it's nearly at 40 again. Yep. Pretty cool. Wow. We're back. We're back on the uh, stock to flow model, so we're within bound bounds again, which is cool. Wow. Well, Andre, what do you think about people that are still um, hating on Bitcoin in the respect that they still 
are, are such big disbelievers in it that they think it's worthless. They think it's going to zero. Do you think there's any hope for that? that those folks, um, like, like, what's your view on that? Um, I would love to hear kind of your perspective. No, I was just thinking about that the other day. At, at what point does Bitcoin have to reach in its career as an asset? to have at least the acknowledgement from the rest of the world to be like, okay, look, it's a very volatile asset. I'm not into it, but I can see how in the future it'll play a big role in, in the financial space. Like at what point does it have to reach that? Because I feel like we're getting that pushback every single way. And I can see how that was more applicable when Bitcoin was worth, I don't know, a thousand dollars five thousand dollars but now that it's i mean it went to sixty five thousand dollars it's floating around thirty forty thousand like how big does it have to get before you're like okay i acknowledge it's the birth of a new asset it's a different way of thinking about it we don't quite understand how to value its intrinsic value but it's here and it's here to stay um i just i don't see that acknowledgement yet from people which is why it seems like the opportunity to make money with it is still there which is why it's so volatile, which I promise it will slow down. It'll stop being volatile probably once it reaches in $100,000, $200,000 range. Once we stabilize there, then the gains will be a little bit less exciting, I imagine. But the stock to flow model, I don't know if you guys um, know what that is or if you looked into that, but that's a really interesting way of looking and predicting where Bitcoin might be headed for the next few years. Interesting. Can you explain that in less than 60 seconds to us, Andre? I could try. I could try. Yeah, there's the stock to flow model is, is basically a prediction model for um, uh, inflation hedged assets, you know, uh, assets that are we can't create more of. So traditionally, we've used it with things like gold and platinum and silver. And this one, um, we we had a guy by the name of Plan B apply the stock to flow model to Bitcoin. <laughs> and in the last 12 years since Bitcoin was created, it's followed the chart like to a T. It's, it's been perfect in its prediction. And the model itself doesn't predict things like that are outliers, like COVID, for example. We can't predict Tether, but we can look at the stock, which is how many Bitcoins there are, and we can compare it against the flow. So, for example, um, the stock of Bitcoin right now is something like 19 million, roughly. And the flow is about 330,000 Bitcoins a year is how many we're creating in the space. So if you divide 19 million by 330,000, the flow, you get, uh, I think it was 58, roughly 58. Now that number is the amount of years that it would take to mine Bitcoin to recreate the current supply, which is a really long time. Now for gold, it's like 62. So it would take us like 60 something years to mine all of the gold out from the earth to recreate our current supply. So obviously the higher that number is, the more rare that commodity or that element is because it takes us longer to get it all out from the space to recreate what we currently have. So anyway, the thing about Bitcoin stock to flow model is that its flow decreases by half every four years because the block reward gets cut in half. So today our block reward is something like 6.25 Bitcoins per block. But in the next four years, in the springtime of 2024, we're gonna have a block a reward of 3.125, so literally half. So that number that I originally told you, the amount of years, 58, will be 116 years in 2024, which means the flow will be super constrained, which means if demand stays the same or increases, which is what it's probably gonna do as more and more people realize what Bitcoin is, they'll wanna buy some of it, maybe hedge funds get into it, the, more, the higher it's gonna go up in value just because there's that much less of it 
as we go further. I don't know if that made any sense. Graham, you got that? No, I, I watched Andre's <laughs> video on. I was I was confused. <laughs> Andre, you did your best, man. You're just you're, you. you're dealing with you know. We might not yeah. have the highest IQs, man. <laughs> it's all good. We're not all crypto people. Yeah, <laughs> you did. You did. A, you did a good job. I'm sure this. You know, most of the people understood that. You guys understand that, right? What Andre okay. just explained. Your there. premise is this: as we go forward, there's less bitcoins to buy. That's it. Mm -hmm. There's less bitcoins to buy, and there's more demand. End of story. And as that happens, the price goes up exponentially. And every four years, the price essentially doubles and doubles and doubles. That's just kind of simple way of explaining it. Does that make more sense? Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. And, you know, the, that's kind of the thing that I am certainly not the biggest believer in Bitcoin, right? Uh, I'm not like, oh, yeah, go, you know, otherwise I would own a ton of Bitcoin. I don't own, uh, I don't think any direct Bitcoin, or if I do, it's a very small amount, right? But at the same time, you can't deny if, if massive amounts of people in the world, which there are, want to hold this asset, you cannot deny it because they are giving it value. And so you can't deny that. And so to see some people still, you know, hating on it and being like, it's going to zero. I'm like, if these people want to hold it, how's it going to go to zero? You know what I mean? Like, like there's always a certain amount of people that want to continue to hold this asset. If it goes under certain prices, they're going to want to buy it. Right. And so I think the, the, the whole argument that it's going to zero is just ridiculous. You, if you want to debate if, if Bitcoin's at 15,000 next year or 150,000. I think that's a fair debate. We can debate that back and forth. But to say it, it has no value because I don't believe it has value, it's just, it's a bad argument, in my opinion. I think when so, people think about Bitcoin, the biggest thing they misunderstand about it is like the overall macro perspective about it. When you think about it in terms of the whole world, it's not just retail investors. So people are like, oh, it's the greater fool theory. You're just trying to sell it to a person who wants to buy it for more. That's dumb. The reality is there's there's countries, for example, Kazakhstan, I think like today or this week announced that they were going full Bitcoin. I mean, we're going to have countries, especially third world countries, start adding to this to their balance sheet because their currencies suck. Like they're, they're just bad currencies. They can't compete yep. on a global level. And I think because people misunderstand like the global economics, the macroeconomics of things, they just they don't understand that Bitcoin could be anything other than just something people like a Beanie Babies or something. Mm -hmm. So it's unfortunate. Yeah. And I think we're going to miss it. But in another way to kind of stick up for, for Bitcoin in this situation is somebody will see, you know, Kazakhstan or, or El Salvador or whatever, like uh, adopting, let's say, Bitcoin. And I'll be like, oh, who cares about that place? It's about where you're starting, right? And if you start, that's just important, right? No different than a company buying and putting some money in their treasury into Bitcoin. It's a start, and it's it's a it's a growth pattern. And you know, it's not you don't have to all of a sudden have the United States say, "Oh, Bitcoin's the future for us." Like that's not going to happen right now, right? But maybe in five years and ten years, it does because all these other countries adopt, and maybe over time, the U.S. has to. Like you never know how these things will play out, right? But to just laugh it off and be like, "Who cares?" Like you know, I, I definitely watch people do that with Tesla stock over time. Tesla it was it was a niche automaker, right? And it's becoming bigger and bigger. And still, people would be like, "Well, they only sold this amount." And it's like, "Well, look at where the trajectory is going. Everything's going in their favor." Similar to how you know a lot of things are going in Bitcoin's favor, where it's like more countries adopting it, more companies buying in, and those sorts of things. Right. Which isn't, by the way, for me, like I'm not trying to tell people like buy Bitcoin regardless of the price. I'm not telling people mm -hmm. to recklessly buy it because it's going to millions of dollars. Like I have to acknowledge traditional finance, right? That's not the smartest thing to do. So just 
dollar cost average, no more than 10% of your annual income. And if you don't do that, you're literally risking more money. Like it's a bigger risk not owning Bitcoin than owning at least 1% of your investment portfolio. Like you're just taking a huge risk not owning any. That's Jeremy. right. I thought, I thought one to 5%. At you, Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> one to, honestly, Jeremy, I, I'm being serious. Take 2% of your portfolio and put it in Bitcoin. Correct. 2%. Your portfolio uh, probably, you know, it, it does that in a week, up or minus 2%. You may as well just take 2% and put it in Bitcoin. I'm being serious. Yeah. So I wish I didn't do that earlier. Yeah. Here's the thing. Like for me, I probably have more than 2% of my net worth related to Bitcoin because I own MSTR, which it, that one moves exactly how Bitcoin moves. If Bitcoin's up a ton. That's up a ton, right? I own Coinbase stock, extremely tied to Bitcoin. And then I have uh, several Facebook, hundred thousand dollars in Voyager. Facebook and Visa are also heavily exposed to it too. Mm, yeah. So, yep. but three, I own three stocks that are directly benefiting from Bitcoin or not. And those would make up over 2% of my net worth. It might even be as much as four or 5%. So, I mean, I could buy Bitcoin straight up as well, but uh, it's just like, I'm already a little tied to it. I, but um, I think you should do it yeah. just for the perspective of seeing how it works and just like kind of understanding like, oh, wait, that's kind of how this works. And I don't know, the more you know about it, the less you're like, I don't get how this stuff works. It's, it's yeah. you mystify it. You, you brought out a good point there, Andre, and I think we could apply that to all of investing about like, you know, the risk of not investing. Right. And uh, I think that's a, a point that's never uh, stated enough. Right. People think, well, the, the safest way is let's just put the money in a savings account because it's guaranteed. But there's a risk to that. There's a true risk to that. Everything's getting more expensive all the time. You're, the houses get more expensive. The stocks get more expensive. Everything gets more expensive. And so if you're just going to put all your money in a savings account, let's say that's actually a big risk that people don't think of. They just think in terms of, can I lose it? Does it go to zero? And, and all along, it's like, well, you know, you're not going to make any money on that in a savings account and then try to buy a house in 20 years and, and see, see where your money gets you. So, yeah. Um, you know, Which reminds me, we haven't plugged the Clips channel. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, you're right. We forgot that. <clears throat> Guys, the link is down below in the, in the description. Go and subscribe to the Clips channel. Seriously, you're not going to regret doing that. It takes you just a split second. Go ahead, do that. We post two videos a day there. So you see the best little clips. And they're all edited together so nicely. So if you guys, if you guys want that, link down below in the description where you could also get a whole bunch of other goodies. Jeremy, you want to tell us about that? Yes, we have a Weeble link down there, which will allow you to get two free stocks valued up to twenty three hundred dollars. All you got to do is set up an account, deposit a hundred bucks, and who knows, maybe you'll get uh, Kevin's favorite stock, which is uh, Tattooed Chef. Okay, uh, yeah, uh, man. I'm just so sad I didn't get to debate with, with Kevin. Kevin, if you're watching this, man, I miss you. Uh, I mean, it's just not a complete millennial money episode without us debating tattooed chef stock at some Jeremy, point. Wait, and, Kevin just texted man, us saying that he just bought 100 grand of tattooed chef. Quit quit playing with me. Let me check my text message. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, <laughs> you got me so excited, man. That was mean. So I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, anyways, yeah, we, we miss Kevin. I hope he'll be back uh, next week. So what's yeah. this say? Tattoo chef to the moon. Oh, Kevin, I think she said something. Tattoo chef to the moon or something. So. <laughs> Did you guys see that All pop right. up? Well, there was something that popped up we on doing, the screen. And I think we doing Q&A or are we wrapping up? Uh, we should get wrapping up. I got to get going. All right. Yeah. Now we're here. I gotta wrap up. 
I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I got it. So with that said, you guys, thank you so much for watching. Make sure to subscribe. Do that really quick before you leave it. If you're watching this right now, if everyone could just hit the subscribe button. We only go live once a week, so you may as well. It'll help us out a ton. Make sure to hit the like button as well. Feel free to comment if you're watching this back for the YouTube algorithm. And with that said, until next time. Peace. We're going to be live for like the next 10 minutes. Watch. Yeah, I know. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.